Welcome back to our Weird History episode, where we seek to bring you tales of the strange and unusual throughout history. Do tell, Melissa. What are we talking about tonight? Well, it wasn't the original topic I was going to do. But I will also say on the outset, I know a lot of my stuff has been obviously weird because getting the topic of it. So this is really kind of not so weird as it is incredibly fascinating, but it works nonetheless. We are talking about a woman who started off as a maid and became a very famous astronomer. Ooh. Yes, I like this one. Now, I will also, hold on, let me find it, because um, I asked you to uh, ask some of your coworkers between the two topics I was going to do. So I just want to give them a shout out for choosing this one, and I'll do another one on the other topic another time. So, so uh, we had Lino, Michael, Stephanie, and Neil all voted for this. Hi, everybody. Thanks. <laughs> so... <laughs> The lady we're going to talk about not only just became an astronomer, but was one of the most prominent female astronomers of the late Victorian era, which is super cool. And she is mostly remembered today for her incredible catalog of work and also having very early on in her career found and named a nebula. Which one? You'll find out. But I want to know now. Too bad. It's not. I, I've, I've got a story to tell that I'm not going to jump about. Darn it! <laughs> Thought I was special here. You can find <laughs> out along with everybody else. <laughs> now, before we talk about this particular woman and this incredible, very smart woman, let's take a brief detour and set this up by talking about the person who she became employed with and how he rose in the field of Victorian astronomy, which I did not know. It, or maybe I, it just didn't occur to me that astronomy back then was as major a field as it was, or at least here in America. This is mostly taking place in Boston. Oh, so, okay. Yep. So her employer, would become, or the man would become her employer. His name is Edward Charles Pickering. And he was born in Boston, Massachusetts in 1846. And even as a young child, found himself incredibly fascinated by space, the stars and celestial bodies. And by the age of 12, he'd apparently even personally constructed his own telescope to further his personal studies. So I think it's pretty nifty. And eventually, Edward Pickering would go on to graduate from Harvard. His brother, another astronomer and well-known physicist, William Pickering, at the time was a professor at MIT. And then after graduating, Edward Pickering began teaching math at Harvard and then soon transferred to MIT alongside his brother and took a position as an associate professor of physics. And then two years after that, he was apparently made a Thayer Professor of Physics at MIT. I don't know what that is. I tried looking that up because that's my last name and I don't know what this is. Never heard of it. I've never heard of it either. And then when I tried looking it up, 
I just kept getting more information on Edward Pickering and couldn't figure out who this Thayer was that it, it, the professor of physics is named after. There's a lot of Thayers up in the New England area, but all I knew was mostly just West Point. So this is new to me. If anybody knows, shoot it on our, our socials. I want to know. I'm curious. Um, what's it called again? Thayer or something? Thayer Professor of Physics at MIT. Okay. Very. I'm very honestly just very quite curious. I confirmed almost nothing on why it's called that specifically. But during his tenure at MIT, Edward Pickering also created America's very first physics laboratory, which was specifically designed to aid the students in publishing their research, which I think is pretty cool. He would also go on to become the director of the Harvard College Observatory. In the early 1880s, a colleague of his named Henry Draper was a amateur astronomer. And Henry Draper apparently had recently passed away. And Draper had actually been using the relatively new technology of cameras to capture the stars to study astronomy. Cameras had been around since, or at least in America, we know they'd been around since the Civil War, since the 1860s, because there is a very famous picture of Alan Pinkerton and I believe Abraham Lincoln's actually in it, or it's near Abraham Lincoln's actual tent during on the battlefield because Pickering or Pinkerton was working on uncovering some assassination attempts. But so I know that that the cameras are from the 1860s. But what Draper particularly was doing with cameras was fascinating to me. So at this time, it was much more common to make observations in the night sky using your eyes, obviously, than rather than a camera. And cameras back then were done with plates, not like we have today. So they took some time to expose and take. And there was a lot of more technicalities with them, if you will. Now, Draper's wife, Mary Anna Draper, was her husband's partner in his work. And at, not long after her husband passed away, she was approached by Pickering and offered aid to her in any way that he could. The two of them were really good friends. So Mrs. Draper responded by bringing all of her husband's work to Pickering's office and dropping it off. It's a lot of work. Pickering would work through Draper's work and then publish it in Draper's name in 1884. Now, believing that Draper's findings of the, what would be spectral pictures, as in a, like a, on a spectrum, pictures of stars and galaxies and nebula and a whole bunch of other things I didn't even think that they took pictures of back then. Pickering would eventually hire several more assistants to aid in his work. The most fascinating part about this, they were all women. And this group of women okay. would, hmm? So, okay, that is fascinating. I have a section. So uh, we're, we're doing a brief talk on Edward Pickering. Then I'll call, talk into Wilhelmina Fleming. And then I'm going to talk into the group of women, the analyst for working on Draper's catalogs would be known as the Harvard Computers. And that's a strange name to hear today. But at that time, the term computer was used towards people who were analysts because you were doing mathematical equations and solving stuff like a computer or the human calculator, I suppose. 
but I do have a section towards the end about the Harvard computers. It's a very fascinating group. In 1882, Pickering and his computers, as I tend to call them, had developed a method of photographing multiple stars at the same time. And this was done by putting a very large prism in front of the camera plate. And using this method, you're gonna be floored with this, over a span of some decades, using this particular method, they were able to capture well over 220,000 stars on photographs. That's quite a bit. Yeah. Oh, that's nothing compared that's to the other stuff. Then. Yeah. That's fascinating. I keep told you, this is a very fascinating story. Yes, now keep going because I want to know more. Okay. You ready for the, okay, the next sentence is going to floor you as well. So that's a lot of plates to be finding that many stars and taking pictures of multiple stars at the same time. Apparently, these pictures are still looked at today. They're, they're part of a, a preservation that's going on at Harvard, and I'll talk about that later. But it is said that, again, these are plates with exposures on them. It's not film as we know it today. But because of that particularly, it is said that the entire catalog that they've worked through from about the 18, mid-1880s through at least the 1918, I think it is, weighs in and around 120 tons of work. Jeez Louise. That's not, I mean, that's just kind of an unfathomable amount of work. Yeah. That's why I'm sitting here going, I, I have no words. I know. I know. But it's mostly due to the plate, to the weight of the plates, but also these stacks and stacks and stacks of paperwork and notebooks. And I'll get into that later too. So to describe these plates for anyone who may not be familiar with camera technology from this time, they were not in color. Color had film, film had not really been a thing at that time. Um, I mean, even early uh, moving pictures were still technically done on plates. They weren't done on, on film film like we know it today. So they were black and white and the Harvard computers would take the exposure plates that had been taken by the astronomers who had taken them the night before and go through these black and white slash grayscale photos that had sort of a light to dark bands of spectrum on them. And then each plate, if they captured something, would show a distinctive pattern for each star. So each star would show, using the prism method, would show a distinctive light spectrum on the plate. And from that, you can distinguish one star from the other. And the computers, these women would go through all of these pictures and then inspect them and discern if there was anything intriguing or at least unusual about them and catalog it. My goodness. It's a lot of work. That just, it feels like it goes on forever. It kind of does. And I'll get into that later too. <laughs> of course you will. Of course I will. So to finish off with Edward Pickering, over time, he and his computers, mainly Wilhelmina Fleming and Annie Jump Cannon, would develop star classification systems. And this is an alphabetical system for cataloging spectral classes of the stars. 
And this would be known as the Harvard classification system and was the basis for creating the Henry Draper catalog, which is a system still used at Harvard today. And it was developed in the 1880s. Well, they do like to stick to their tradition. If, if, if it ain't broken, why fix it? Not saying fix it, just saying they really like tradition. Well, it is Harvard. Yeah. It is because of Pickering's very long time dedication and the systems that were developed that the Harvard College Observatory gained worldwide recognition at the turn of the century and is still renowned today. Edward Pickering would continue to head the HCO or the Harvard College Observatory for 42 years until his death in 1919. Jesus, that's a long time. In fact, you'll find as I go through in different sections, the, the women who made up the computers, almost, or at least most of them, because there were people in and out throughout the years, but the ones that had stayed on for some time, they made major careers out of being a Harvard computer. We're talking 30, 40, 50 year careers with Harvard, which is a long time for a, a, a you know, late Victorian, early Edwardian female to even have a career, let alone in the sciences. Well, I can't even imagine staying in one place for that long. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not good at that either. Unless it really brings me a lot of joy and intellectual stimulation, sure. So now that we've talked about Edward Pickering, let's talk about his star employee and topic for today, Wilhelmina Fleming. And this, I even found out about this as I was going through some history memes, I didn't even know about this until one of them popped up. And I was like, from a, a one line word on the meme, I'm like, I have to look this up, this is fascinating. And I'll get into that in just a minute. So Wilhelmina was born in Dundee, Scotland on May 15th of 1857. And when she was 20, she married a Scottish widower named James Orr Fleming, who was 16 years older than her, which at the time, you know, standard she's also 20 so she's technically a spinster by this point yeah i was about to say that's pretty standard for those times to marry someone that much older than you yeah but she's also 20 so she's considered old i mean that's also standard for those times that's what i meant yeah yeah so at the time james fleming was an accountant working for a bank and wilmina had taken up a position as a teacher in 1878, so about a year after they got married, the couple moved from Scotland to Boston, Massachusetts. That's a big jump. I couldn't find a reason as to why, but they did. Now, here's the crappiest part of Wilhelmina's life. Thankfully, it's very short. Not long, and I mean very not long, after arriving in Boston, Wilhelmina found herself pregnant, which is fine. It's just that not even having given birth to their son, her husband of just over a year abandons her and his unborn child, and she's left alone to raise their son. What a jerk. Where, where does he go? Do we know? Nope. 
he just disappears. It's not any records I could find. I don't like him. No, but his abandonment of his now growing family leads Wilhelmina to the career she probably was born for. So it's got a really good silver lining. Astrology? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah it's the the astronomy. She was I mean, astrology. astronomy? Yeah, for sure. Wow, I'm tired. It's late for me. <laughs> I've been talking stars, not star signs. I'm sorry you got them mixed up, okay? <laughs> it's very easy. They're very similar words. I totally get it. I've done it plenty of times. So after her husband leaves her while she's still pregnant, Wilhelmina does what she can to find a job in order to make money to support her soon-to-be-born child. So she takes a, a position as a maid while still pregnant, as far as I can understand, and becomes part of the household of Edward Pickering. So it's actually even believed that, so Wilhelmina, in any employee as a maid of Edward Pickering, gave birth to her son, whom she named Edward, not James after his father, obviously. And it's believed that as part gratitude to her employer, particularly for hiring her when she not only was a single mother, despite being married, but she was also pregnant, I believe at the time that she'd gotten hired, she named her son Edward after her employer. As part gratitude is then that's the belief wow well it goes far beyond that too that was just the beginning of her gratitude to edward pickering i mean i would feel truly indebted in those times for that absolutely oh especially i mean yeah and we're talking 1879 1880 tops even if you were uh married and your husband had passed away but you were a single mom you were still looked down upon even if you were you know, rightfully married when you had children it, it was such a weird thing so anyway after some time in the pickering household while still raising her newborn son edward's wife elizabeth came to realize that Wilhelmina had much more to give to society than just custodial and maternal talents, as they put it in the article I read. Meaning she was a lot smarter than just being able to take the position as a maid. It was also around this same time that Pickering apparently was having a debate with a colleague regarding his colleague's intelligence. And legend goes that one day, during one of these serve, I guess, office debates, Pickering remarked to his colleague, my Scottish maid could do a better job than you. Paraphrasing. That's quite an accusation to make. Mm-hmm. That's very insulting to that other person. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's like the Victorian version of a Shakespearean insult. Now, with keeping in mind, around the same time, Edward's wife, Elizabeth, is noticing Wilhelmina's intellectual talents, and he's barking off to a colleague saying, my Scottish maid could do better than you. With this recommendation from his wife, and even possibly to prove his statement, Pickering 
I guess promoted, if you will, Wilhelmina from a housemaid to do observatory to do administrative work in the observatory in 1879. So they had she hadn't even been with the family for maybe a year at this point. That's not a promotion. That's a whole new position. No, that's a promotion. The position will come later. Oh, geez, Louise. Good <laughs> for her, though. Really had. Uh, I mean, like I said, it didn't start off great, but it ended phenomenally. Be the go-getter. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do Wait it. till later. You. I mean, she had intelligence out the wazoo. I mean. And yeah. I'm barely scratching the surface at the moment. Jeez, Louise, if you barely made a dent. I've barely made a dent. Oh, I can't wait to hear the rest. Let's you go. really can't. I was floored. Wilhelmina went from being a housemaid in 1878, maybe early 1879, to then being hired to do admin work at the observatory under her employer now. Uh, additional employer, William uh, or um, Edward Pickering. I keep wanting to say William Pickering because I know his brother. Uh, by 1881, just two years later, after doing admin work for two years and showing off her intelligence and proving that she was capable of doing more complicated things. Are you ready for this one? Two years after being given the admin position, Edward Pickering officially hired Wilhelmina to work alongside him at the Harvard College Observatory. Not only just teaching her about astronomy because she knew nothing about it other than what she had picked up while working at the observatory, but also how to analyze the spectral data that he had begun to work on that he would take up after the death of Henry Draper. Absolutely brilliant. That just sounds amazing. And still scratching the surface. She must pick things up real quick. Again, I'm only scratching the surface. Not only did she get handpicked to work alongside Edward Pickering, who was a very well-known astronomer and heading the Harvard College Observatory at the time, but she was also a woman with no background in astronomy, no graduation degrees, nothing. But he saw that she had massive potential and took a gamble to give it to her. Absolutely fascinating. And in addition to that, at the same time or so that she was hired, she would become the very first of what would become the Harvard computers. Again, that is an all female group that would literally as uh, so to quote compute mathematical classifications and edit the observatory's publications it's a lot of work and it's a lot of brain work oh yeah i mean if you take a look at the movie oh gosh hidden figures yes with henrietta flack no yeah. wait that's yes no 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 taraji p henson Sorry, no, Henrietta Flack was the woman who gave her DNA uh, on Wilhelmina oh. and then all that stuff. Yes. Different... That's another fascinating, weird thing I might talk about another day. Yes, but I was just saying that the computers in that movie, which are barely spoken of, uh, were 
working very hard in the movie and you barely see them. The one they focus on is Taraji P. Henson's character, of course. And, and, and her work getting out to outer space uh, in orbit a spaceship. So, I mean, geez, it's not a spaceship. The words are escaping me right now. I'm just tired. Right. But that just gives you an idea of the work that they were doing at that time, which is 1900s versus what she's doing in the 1800s. Well, I mean, yeah, it sounds like Hidden Figures was the 1840s, maybe 1950s. So we're talking 70 years beforehand, give or take. Let me send you a picture of... I, I... Hidden Figures is the story of Katherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Mary Jackson. That's that's who I'm talking about. Who put um what's his name John John Glenn into no I'm gonna it. send you a picture of Margaret Hamilton. I don't know if you know her. I don't. The name doesn't ring a bell, but I'm gonna send you a picture and um it, she was one, she was a coder for NASA that helped put the first spaceship in space. Oops, wrong picture. And the amount of work that she did just to do that is staggering. She doesn't look like she's a very tall girl uh, or woman. She looks like she's maybe about as tall as you, give or take. And the stack of her coding just for the one spaceship is just about as tall as she is. Okay, I got the picture and I, I see it. Jeez Louise. Yeah, and that's just for the first Sh uh, the, the first aircraft in space or, or uh, the NASA's first space shuttle, I guess. So imagine that, but you've got a, a, a multi-group of women in the 1880s with piles of work, probably that tall, decoding and classifi classifying star systems and galaxies. It's just boggling i love it so continuing on with wilhelmina fleming she would go on to become one of the foremost female astronomers of the victorian era at least in america and when pickering took up the task of creating the henry draper catalog after receiving the work from his wife fleming was specifically chosen by pickering to spearhead the project and it's a monumental project. Her goal and the goal of the project was to devise a classification system in order to organize the spectral data of the stars that had been taken pictures of and that they were continuing to take pictures of. Now, very soon, because you had several people on the team, there were disagreements on at what kind of classification would be best. Everyone was putting forth their own ideas. Some agreed with others and some didn't. And at one point, one of the computers, Antonia Mari, had devised a system that she thought would be helpful, but Wilhelmina, again, in charge of the project, deemed that it would end up becoming too complex. And she wanted to give the project a much simpler way of classifying the stars that could also be adjusted when, if needed. So at this point in the history of the observatory, the images that they had gathered had now been able to extend into the ultraviolet range. 
keeping in mind these were not colored pictures no it's i'm just thinking of the colors that you were just talking about and then remembering along with what you said these aren't colored photographs so it's no they are literally it's 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 a picture with a light band on it and, and the in the light spectrum but you're able to take ultraviolet range photos using victorian cameras i it's still it's just uh, mind-boggling to me and this of course being able to take pictures in that range also allowed for far more accurate classifications So I just sent you another picture because I think it's a little hard to describe when you don't have a visual of what the light band spectrum on these plates would have looked like. And you can see in each plate the differentiation between each star that was captured. Yeah, you can. But imagine your job is to not only distinguish visually with your naked eye any characteristics in that picture but you're taking a magnifying glass to the plate to notice any minute distinct characteristics as well let me reopen that picture sorry i put i put it down i mean it's it looks like it just gets from thick to thinner in like the the line yeah and but each like star will bit- have its own light spectrum yeah it looks like there's a little bit of staggering at the far end on um, on but those are at the picture i sent you has different plates on it it's not just one plate looks like i i can't really tell it's not a very clear picture but it's a digitized page therefore it's not very clear yeah. i'm just saying like i can't read a ton off of this i don't even know what the words are saying well that's okay i just wanted to get you give you a general idea of what their visuals of the photographs would have looked like and how time consuming their work was so continuing with wilhelmina based on new photos that were consistently being taken she would create a system where the stars were organized. This is the first system that they used. Based on the relative amount of hydrogen observed and their spectral analysis. A classification system in the 1880s of stars based on the amount of hydrogen in their system. I can't, I can't even imagine that. And this would eventually become known as the Pickering-Fleming system. And that is the first thing to her name. The system went thus. Stars that had shown that hydrogen was their most abundant element were labeled A. Stars with hydrogen as their second most abundant were labeled B, and so forth and so on. The fact that you can tell the amount of hydrogen in a picture from that time, and that's not just light spectrum, again, just mind-boggling. And that is not the only thing she would be known for. Now, when a better technology was available, this system would actually become reordered by Annie Jump Cannon. And that would be eventually replaced with a system based on the surface temperature of the stars. Which you can apparently tell by a photograph. 
hell do you tell that by a photograph? I'm assuming with the light spectrum, but the service temperature reorder classification system, I believe, was in the late 1890s. So it, the Pickering-Fleming system had been used for a little while before Annie Jump Cannon was able to reorganize it based on more adequate technology. But I don't know. How does any of this actually, like, just, it floors me that this kind of stuff was going on back then. Not that it, it couldn't have gone on back then. It's just, it's, I mean, it is the Victorian times, but the, the fact that you could tell some of this from just some of the pictures is amazing. It's amazing the technology they used and how much they figured out just from what they had. Yeah little they had that's just it's fascinating absolutely absolutely freaking lately all right after working on the henry draper catalog for several years because again it was a monumental amount of work the all-female computers published their first catalog in 1890 and they started in around 1881, 1882. So it took them about eight years to finally have enough data to put into their first catalog. In this first catalog, they had published information on more than 20,000 classified stars. Is there more mind-boggling information? I mean, I, it just doesn't stop right now. Well, of course there is. This is me. I know. I don't know why I asked. I don't either. So that was the first catalog of the Harvard computers. And for Wilhelmina, eight years later, she was specifically chosen to be the curator of astronomical photographs at Harvard the very first woman to hold that position. And after she, I, I don't know if she was still holding the position when she passed away, I think she was, but after she finished holding the position, it, another woman would not take reins of curator of astronomical photographs until the 1950s. Interesting, that's quite a gap of time. Yeah, but again, it's 1898 and she's being, she's already a very well known by this point for her work. She's been doing it for about, about 10 years or so at this point. And now she's a curator at the place she works at. It's fantastic. And I'm going to give you a one sentence summation of her nearly 30 year work at the observatory. You're not going to believe what I'm about to say. Over her near 30 years of working at the observatory, Wilhelmina Fleming alone would discover through spectral analysis of the photographs, 59 gaseous or gaseous nebulae and more than 300 variable stars and 10 nova. That's an astounding amount. It's also not her biggest claim to fame. There's something bigger? Oh, way bigger. Or smaller, depending on your, how you want to look at it. Is it a planet? 
Almost, sort of. All right, I'm waiting to hear this. <laughs> well, she's got two claims to fame. One I didn't know about and one that sort of got me into this in the first place. Her most notable discovery was in 1888, about six, seven years after she officially started at the observatory. While looking through a telescope photogrammetry, okay, I had to look this up because I didn't know what that meant. According to Wikipedia, telescope photogrammetry is obtaining reliable information about physical objects and their environment through the process of recording, measuring, and interpreting photographic images and patterns of electromagnetic radiant imagery and other phenomena. Science. Science there. Now, this, the plate that she was looking at has actually been taken by Edward's younger brother, William, who, again, was also an astronomer and teacher of physics. In this plate, plate B2312, while looking through it, she discovered what would be named the Horsehead Nebula. She described it as having, quote, a semicircular indentation five minutes in diameter, 30 minutes south of Zeta Orionis. And I had to look that up. Zeta Orionis is a triple star cluster and the constellation of Orion and makes up one of the three stars on Orion's belt. The technology for photographing that at the time was advanced enough that you could take pictures of nebula and distant constellation stars. Jeez, it kind of sounds like she was a bit of an overachiever. I bet she was. I'm a little bit jealous. She had a journal where she published a whole bunch of stuff. Or, sorry, she had a journal where she wrote a whole bunch of her personal stuff, obviously. And at one point she describes, because she's then she's a single mom trying to raise her son all through this time we're trying to do like PhD level work essentially. And she works a lot. And she's like, it's at work is work and home life is home life, but it definitely takes up a lot of my time, but it's worth it in the end. Now, that is Fleming's most notable discovery. This is something I thought me personally is maybe her most notable discovery just for my own personal fascination. She's also noted, not because, not, it, it's not, she's not the first female to note this. She's the first person to have having been noted as discovering the existence of the first white dwarf. Jeez. Using Victorian camera imagery. I... I'm mind boggled. I love space. This is so great. I love space to an extent where it's like, I will not go up there, but I love watching like shows on it and everything. But she's just, the what she did is mind boggling. Uh-huh. And she's one of several women who went on to have phenomenal careers with Harvard Observatory as part of being part of the computers. This is just Wilhelmina Fleming. Yeah. And I'm still not done with her story just yet. Oh, geez. <laughs> I'm done with all of her notable, uh, no notable discoveries, but I'm not done with her story. All right. She would eventually publish her findings of the white dwarf specifically 
1910, which is fantastic. Some of her other publications are a photographic study of variable stars published in 1907 and spectra and photographic magnitudes of stars in standard regions published in 1911. She would also take a position as the observatory's production manager on top of everything else, quote, writing, editing, proofreading papers, annual reports, and data tables. It's like she never stopped. She just kept going and kept going. I mean, I'll be honest, it's nine o'clock at night. I'm tired. I already work in the morning, like early in the morning. I can't imagine the pile of work this woman has. Well, also, I mean, she locked in to an incredible and very rewarding position. Having been a single mom in the 18, in 1880, more or less, and started off as a maid and the household of a well-known astronomer who then took a chance and turned her into an amazing astronomer. But also the work must have had enough rewards because had she not done that and gone into something else, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunities for her because she didn't have the schooling background in a lot of these sciences. She didn't have much. So she lucked into this and lucked in well. But I think, I think she was just born to do this. She had the brain to really do this and had the determination for it, as did all the other women in the computers too. She would also become one of the very few women who would give lectures at scientific conferences at the time, partly being allowed to do so, mostly because of her reputation by that point. And in fact, I read 1989. In 1899, she received a standing ovation at a national gathering of astronomers during one of her lectures after her employee Pickering had given her a lavish praise at the conference of her achievements. That must have been something. And she actually has a pretty notable quote, which is labor honestly, conscientiously and steadfastly and recognition and success must crown your efforts in the end. And Wilhelmina Fleming, unfortunately died rather young of pneumonia after not long after her last publication, 1911, she died on May 21st of 1911. That's sad. Yeah, I think she was 54 ish. Yeah, my bath is right. At least your son was all grown up. Oh, by that point, oh sure, he would have had probably a career of his own of some kind. Although I couldn't find oh, any information. On him. Yeah, I'm just saying it's better that he was all grown up and that he didn't lose her very young, along with the fact that he didn't have a dad. Yeah, yeah, and she never remarried. Yeah, I was the dad was a coward. Among many other words you could use, yeah. I was trying to be PG. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to get better at being PG on here. <laughs> in addition to all this, she was also an advocate to put more women in sciences in the late Victorian times. And she even promoted that and a publication she put out called A Field Guide for Women's Work in Astronomy, which was published at, um, at the 1893 Chicago's World Fair. I mean, 
good for her. Yeah, I'm still not done. Jeez Louise. (laughs) Some of her recognitions in the early 1900s would be an honorary member of the Royal Astronomical Society of London, probably one of the very few women in the society at the time, an honorary fellowship in astronomy at Wellesley College in America, and was awarded the Guadalupe Elemendaro Medal for her work and by the Astronomical Society of Mexico, all before her death in 1911. In addition, there is a lunar crater on the moon named after her called the Fleming Lunar Crater, as well as an asteroid titled 5747 Wilhelmina. Now, though the Harvard computers were very known and very well respected, obviously, at their time, they unfortunately over time have begun mostly forgotten by the general public. I never knew of them until just recently. Yep. In 2015, the curator of Harvard's plate stacks collection, Lindsay Smith as had been working on digitizing the collection's plates when apparently she had come across 118 boxes, each holding anywhere between 20 and 30 notebooks. And this is all of the work of the Harvard computers. Realizing the importance of the work, but knowing that the size of the scope of what needed to be done was beyond what she was able to do, because we're talking more than 2,500 volumes of work to go through. She contacted librarians at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics and asked them for help. The center's Wolbach Library launched, I believe it's called Phaedra, preserving Harvard's early data in research and astronomy. The team then began going through all of the materials and digitizing them for anyone who wanted access to look at them. As of August of 2017, 200 of the 2,500 plus volumes have now been digitized and transcribed. So it's now 2022. I would maybe put that at close to maybe 500 out of 2,500, give or take, depending on how the progression of the project's gone. And obviously it's expected to take several years to go through. But if anyone is interested, some of these notebooks are listed on the Smithsonian Digital Volunteers website. And anyone who wants to help transcribe the notebooks is also welcome to check that out too. And would you like a little bit of information on the Harvard computers as a whole? All right. Before we finish this out. All righty. All right. So the heart and soul of the Victorian era Harvard Observatory the Harvard computers, if you will. So it may seem that particularly for the time, hiring only women was a very progressive thing to do because especially given that it's a high graduate plus level sciences and male dominated. And in most instances at the time, it was very progressive to do. However, there was a bit of a catch. It is the Victorian times, or at least it's, you know, women throughout history times. Yep. Pickering was 
able to continue the observatory's work as well as working on creating and continuing the Henry Draper catalog, it would have been too expensive for him to hire men because he only had so much of a budget he was given. And men were obviously paid substantially far more than women. Sad moments. I mean, can you? Yes. mm. Well, yes and no. So the way that Pickering would, um, when asked about it, the way Pickering described it is that he was only given a certain amount of budget to work with. And instead of having a small amount of intelligent men to work on a monumental task, it was efficient or more efficient for the well-being of the project to hire as many people as possible, if though paying them less, but it meant you had more of a workforce to be able to get through the amount of work they needed to get through. So in a sense, I I could see that in terms of more of an efficient way of getting through the, and I mean, monumental amount of work that the Harvard University Observatory had to continue with, particularly in trying to go through all of Henry Draper's stuff and continuing Henry Draper's work. So I I can get that. You, You had more staff, the more work you can get through. That's pretty much it. Now, for those who on the team of the the Harvard computers, some of them were and some of them weren't actually astronomy graduates. I was surprised to find that out too. Some of them were. But the women on the team were paid between 25 to up to 50 cents an hour at the time, which translates to roughly $7 to about $14 today which in my state it's 750 an hour for the base pay and here in california it's like 14 dollars an hour so been there done that uh virginia's minimum wage is it's a little under 12, it's $11 actually. Oh, it is now. Okay. Well, as of a couple years ago, it was still $7.15 the hour. Federal minimum wage is $7.25. Or it's still $7.25. Okay. I just remember when I was there about 10 years ago, I was getting paid $7.25 an hour for some of my jobs. Well, we both lived in Virginia and worked there and the minimum wage was $8.10 when I worked there. And that was four years ago, four or five years ago. Yeah, the job I got paid at less than the cashiers, and I did triple the amount of work uh, when I worked at my campus university, was back, uh, I quit there in 2012. So we're talking 2009 to 2012. I was well underpaid, got paid less than the cashiers. And I know, yeah. I know that feeling, same thing, 810 was minimum wage uh, in 2015. So I'm sorry, not five years ago, this is seven years ago. So at the time, 25 to 50 cents an hour, the women would have made more than a factory worker, but less than a cleric for the clerical work that they were doing. Now, despite this obvious pay gap, many of the women were more than happy to have the chance to work in a field that was not usually open to them. And in fact, over the years, some on the team who came to work there offered to even work for free 
to do volunteer work in order to have an opportunity to gain any kind of field experience in order to work towards our graduate degree. Very nice. Mm -hmm. Now, regardless of their pay, the computers, as just from Wilhelmina's biography, were incredibly highly skilled, highly intelligent, dedicated, and incredibly efficient in their work. Quote, the women were often tasked with measuring the brightness, position, and color of the stars. The work included such tasks as classifying stars by comparing the photographs to known catalogs and reducing the photographs while accounting for things like atmospheric refraction in order to render the clearest possible image. That's just one of the tasks that the carpet computers would do over the centuries, or I'm sorry, over the decades, brain. Now, several of the most notable computers were Mary Anna Draper, wife of Henry Draper, Wilhelmina Fleming, as we just talked about, Antonia Mari, Anna Winlock, Anna, uh, Annie Jump Cannon, Henry, uh, Henrietta Levitt, and Florence Cushman. And I'm just going to give you a brief Passover um, on the women I have yet to talk about. Just a, a, just a brief, brief few sentences on each one, just to give you an idea of what their contributions were. Marianna Draper, as I mentioned, was the wife of Henry Draper. And when her husband died, she passed his work on to Edward Pickering, who then used it to confound the computers and helped to publish the Draper catalog. Mary would also, because she was quite wealthy, would fund the observatory and provide them with new technology for it going into the early 1900s. Antonia Mari was the niece of Henry Draper, was also a graduate of Vassar College. She worked with the computers in the 1880s and helped to design the classifications that they created. She published her work with the observatory in 1897. Anna Winlock was the daughter of Joseph Winlock, Pickering's observatory predecessor. She joined the computers, or sorry, she joined the observatory in 1875 and continued to work on her father's unfinished studies over the years. Over her 20 year career with the observatory, she would work on the Cambridge Zone, which is a star cataloging system. The zone would contribute to the, and I'm going to butcher this German, Astronomische Gesellschaft Catalog, which is a catalog used worldwide today. Annie Jump Cannon was a graduate of Wesley College and was hired by the team to help classify Southern stars. She would become the first female assistant to study variable stars in the night sky, as well as the light curve of variable stars. She was instrumental in creating the classification system that was based on the temperature of stars, as I mentioned before, and over her career as an astronomer for the Harvard Observatory, she would also go on to receive several honoraries and medals for her work in astronomical sciences. Henrietta Leavitt joined the team in 1893 and was given the task of measuring the brightness of stars via photometry. Over her career, she would discover hundreds of variable stars, and she would be the one to realize, this is phenomenal, 
that by studying the Cepheid variables and the star, sorry, and the small Magellanic cloud, I'm not sure what that is. I can find that one out. But it did, it, it, it's uh, some space formation that the brightness of the variables, uh, of the Cepheid variables, depended on their period. And by that, I believe that's referring to the period of their development. Because the stars in the cloud were approximately the same distance from Earth from each other, the Cepheid variables would become the standard for determining cosmic distances. In fact, Edwin Hubble would go on to use Henrietta's method to calculate the distance of our nearest galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy, giving him the realization that there are far more galaxies than previous thought of but he would not have been able to necessarily do that without the help of Henrietta Leavitt. And last on our list is Florence Cushman. She began to work with computers in around 1888 and would be a very long time contributor to the Henry Draper catalog. Her years being between 1918 and 1934. She stayed working as an astronomer up at the observatory up until 1937 and she passed away just two or three years later. She began working at the astronomy, or at the, at, she began her work at the observatory in 1888 and left in 1937. She would do most of her work via the use of an objective system, or sorry, objective prism, which is the slitless spectroscopy. If you've ever looked at an observatory uh, and we've seen some of them where it's the big rotation and inside of the big dome, it's just a small slit. That's what she worked with. And she used this in order to catalog, classify, and analyze hundreds of thousands of stars over her near 50-year career as an astronomer. And that is everything I have on the Harvard College Observatory. Wilhelmina Fleming and the Harvard computers. That's a mind-boggling episode, and I'll come back to you tomorrow with maybe some some more commentary. But I think I need to take all that in. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot, but it's absolutely fascinating. Oh yeah, absolutely. But uh, that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. I think that was quite a bit. But we do hope to see you next week as we check through history to explain it all. <laughs> Bye. Bye.